Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. 1 John can be found on page 960 in the Black Pew Bibles. If you're here as a guest or visitor and you didn't bring your own Bible, then please feel free to grab one of the Black Bibles in the seats around you, and you can know that 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 4, can be found on page 960. If you don't own a Bible, then please feel free to take that home with you as our gift to you and continue reading and studying God's Word together as we believe these are the words of life for your life. I'm going to read starting in verse 4. So there's the little verse numbers, and then I'm going to continue all the way through verse 12. Before I read the passage, I'd like to inform you of one of the best-selling books of all time. The number one bestseller is hopefully in all of your hands right now. It's called The Holy Bible. The second bestseller is John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. I am not going to be reading or referencing Pilgrim's Progress, but that's the book that I'm assuming a lot of you do know from this author, John Bunyan. The also well-known, but maybe not as well-known book that John Bunyan wrote is his own personal autobiography of how he came to faith in Christ. Many people believe you should be reading Pilgrim's Progress and the grace abounding to the chief of sinners, that's the name of his own personal life story of becoming a Christian. So Pilgrim's Progress, allegory, grace abounding to the chief of sinners, the real backstory behind the allegory, because it's probably best to assume Pilgrim's Progress is really John Bunyan's own personal story. But here's the, the turning point. This is the spoiler alert. This is what changed his life. He said it was a single sentence. One day, Bunyan writes, as I was passing into the field suddenly, this sentence fell upon my soul. My righteousness is in heaven. And I thought, I could see Jesus Christ at God's right hand. Yes, there indeed was my righteousness. So that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say about me that I did not have righteousness, for it was standing right there before him. I also saw that it was not my good feelings that made my righteousness any better, and it wasn't my bad feelings that would make my righteousness any worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. End quote. A single sentence. My righteousness is in heaven. Five words. This is what John Bunyan explains changed his whole perspective about God and changed his actual life the way he lived. I actually think this single sentence serves well to summarize our text of Scripture. My righteousness is in heaven. 
have that in mind as I read the text for us. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. And we'll pause there. And that'll end our reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And my prayer is that in the same way that John Bunyan had a single sentence of five words, my righteousness is in heaven, this passage of scripture summarized with those five words will fall deeply upon your soul and heart and have a similar encouraging, life-altering effect. Amen? Let's break down this single sentence into two parts. My righteousness, part one, is in heaven, part two. And we'll use those as guides to make our way through what is easily a complicated text. Even just knowing where to begin and end its section is challenging. But one thing I think that's very clear from the get-go is that it's about righteousness. John uses the word righteous earlier in the letter, chapter one and two. We'll talk about that later on when we get to part two. For now, as we think about just why we're stopping right in the middle of the paragraph in the ESV is because of that last word. Abel's brother, Abel, the brother, he was righteous. And that's the last time you're going to see the word righteous. And so I've created a little bookend of what I think is a section that has to do with a con contrast between sin and righteousness. And that's why we have the section of scripture in front of us for the sermon text for today. So what we want to do is we want to think through my righteousness, your righteousness. You should be righteous. How do you get it? And it's in heaven. So first, my righteousness. I want you to just realize that John is assuming that you can have it. You, you can be righteous or lawless, but you're one or the other. You can have the righteousness and possess it. And so that's why we're using this phrase, my righteousness. You can be a righteous person. Do you believe that? It's going to be difficult for you to follow along in this sermon if you've already got obstacles to this simple idea. You can become a righteous person. Let's look back at verse 
29 of chapter 2. Just a few verses back, right there on the same page, more than likely. Notice the beginning discussion. This is what I mean by the bookends of righteousness. If you know that he is righteous, he referring to Jesus Christ, the one who is coming, as he mentions in verse 28. If you know that Jesus Christ is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Being born again is a common term. It comes from passages like this or in John chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. If you call yourself a born again Christian, which I think is a great term by the way, then you're saying that I have been made new inside of me and the way that we know that someone has been born again is that they are practicing righteousness, the way they live, the deeds they do, how they live their lives. Keep reading down in verse 3, the verse that comes right before our text. Notice that everyone who thus hopes in Christ, they're being purified as he himself is pure. Do you see how similar that is to the language of verse 29 that we just read? Everyone who practices righteousness is born of him as he is righteous. Chapter 3, verse 3. We hope in Christ, we're being purified and cleansed, scrubbed clean, as he is pure. Then, verses 4, 5, and 6. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And this passage specifically has become extremely difficult for people to make sense of. On the surface, it might sound like if you're here today and you call yourself a Christian and then you sinned yesterday, well then perhaps you're not really a Christian. Or even just how to translate this word lawlessness. It's unique here in John, but it's actually a broad word that's used all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament in various places. At least it's relative cognates, a a friend, a similar word. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning is practicing lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. And if Jesus Christ came to take away sins and he's not a sinner, well, then if you're abiding in Jesus and you keep on sinning, well, then you don't know Jesus. The logic seems pretty black and white and straightforward. So before you get too caught up into what I'm trying to say when I say, what's your righteousness? And if you're thinking sinless perfection, you're thinking very poorly, incorrectly, unbiblically. I don't think John has that in mind whatsoever. As I was studying this earlier in the week, I actually started thinking that there's arguments that he's talking about a very specific sin, that he relates to if you turn over to chapter 5 and he starts talking about two kinds of sin. There's a sin that leads to death and then there's another sin that does not lead to death. So this is chapter 5 verses 16 and following. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Also another confusing passage, but many interpreters put our text, 1 John 3, with 1 John 5 and say there's two kinds of sin that John has in his mind. One is the sin of lawlessness, which is specific. It's a rebellion against Jesus, a rejection of Jesus completely, apostasy, leaving the Christian faith, not saying you believe in Christ at all. 
And that's the sin that leads to death because if you reject Jesus, well, then there is no hope for life. There's no hope for eternal life. If this is the only source for eternal life and you reject that source, well, then your end is death. And early on in the week, I was reading and interpreting the text that way, and I thought, that sounds good. I agree with that. Logically, it makes sense. And if that's your interpretation of the text in 1 John, I think that you're not too far off. However, as I continued working through the text, I started to think, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think it's just about the idea about the nature of sin. Sin is lawlessness. is a really general and broad statement. It's about the crookedness of our heart that we would want to be our own master and Lord. And so it's put in parallel between either Jesus is your master or you are your own master. And then that's why he can talk in such black and white sort of ways. Now, if you start reading it in that lens, either option one or option two, whether it's the complete rejection of Jesus altogether or just this idea that you have a master, it's either you or it's Jesus. And sin at its nature is a rebellion and a rejection against God as our master, our Lord. And that's, I think, probably why I would go with option two. It's just the general nature of sin is not keeping the law of God, not in the specific, I broke a single law, but that I do not want him to be my master at all. And that's at the very nature of what sin is in our soul when we sin. Think of it like this in terms of a basic illustration. The reason that the ESV and several other translations use the phrase make a practice of is because they want to help interpret the sense here. It's not literally what the words are saying, it's just practice sinning. But to make a practice in a continual sense would be like saying, we were singing earlier in the worship service, correct? We sang two songs before I got up here. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his, his, his righteousness. Now, by way of illustration, let's imagine that you were singing that song. You were singing it out of tune, or maybe you came in at the wrong time. Like, yes, you, you might have messed up, but corporately and collectively, it probably got swallowed up in the greater sound of our offering of praise going up to heaven, which is beautiful when you think about congregational singing not being about a few performers on stage that were watching, but congregational singing is about how you could sing poorly, you could sing beautifully, but as we raise our voices in unity together and we say things like, the blood of Jesus is what I trust and lean on, and only that is worthy of my life and hope and praise. Amen? If that's you, even if you sang off, timing was off, it gets swallowed up in the, the praise. So that's example illustration number one, is that similar to singing, the difference between what John is saying about sin being lawlessness and you struggling with sin is more like, I'm struggling to sing pitch perfect. But you're singing the right song, aren't you? Like you sang the actual words and you were generally with us and it all got swallowed up versus... Imagine you sing Sam Smith's song, Unholy, in the middle of us singing it. Like, it's a completely different song. It has satanic lyrics. It has nothing to do with the worship of Jesus Christ. And you, sitting there in the middle of the pew, are trying as loud as you can to belt out some kind of unholy, demonic song. Now, is that what you were doing? I didn't hear that, praise God. 
Maybe if you were doing it in your heart. Now, use this as an illustration. You might stumble. You might sin at times. But are you, are you singing? Are you dancing? Is the rhythm of your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, the theme and the, the song of the gospel? Let's use a second illustration in case you're not into music. You've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light, Colossians chapter 1 says. You you did not just get transferred from one team to another. You, You have been taken out of the sport that you are playing, and you are playing a different game altogether. And you have on your team a star. He is going to ensure that we will be successful. In fact, he has already won and you have been transferred at just the right time where there is an opportunity for you to be on this team and play this game together. Sure, you might get a penalty, a red card, you might trip and fall again in various ways, but if you're on the team, you are playing the game. And the contrast here is more stark. It is more about no, those who are of the devil, those who are sons of Satan, They are those that do not have the basic identity of Jesus Christ as Lord and Master. They call the shots. Sin is lawlessness. So you practice and you live out based on the game that you're playing. And in this case, it's called the Christian life. If it's running, for example, it would be You're on a completely different path, and even if you fall down and get tripped and stumble at times, you're still on the right path. John is not talking about stumbling every once in a while. He's not talking about missing a note here or there or coming in at the wrong time. He's saying, are you playing the right song? The song is Jesus. It's the righteousness of Christ. Is that the song you sing? Is that what you tap your foot to? Is the rules of the game, Jesus Christ is my righteousness? If that's the case, then... And only then will you start actually living and working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have to have that salvation. And then you will practice righteousness, which is what he's going to go on to say. Let's just read the rest of the passage in light of that idea. Little children, this is verse 7 of chapter 3. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness, they're righteous, just like Jesus is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And so he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness They are not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So I say it again. You can have righteousness. You can possess it. You can be a righteous person. You can practice righteous living. You can be on the path of living a Christ-honoring life. And so, are you? Before we move on any further, do you all understand righteousness very simply defined is I am in a right relationship with God and in a right relationship with other people. Are you in good standing with God? Are you in good standing with the people around you? John wants to make sure you understand that the very 
first story out of the Garden of Eden gives a beautiful contrast between the righteous seed of the line of the one that would crumb and crush the serpent's head, Abel, how he was right with God and how God had favor with him, had regard for his offering. And because of that, hatred, anger, and jealousy rose up within Cain. Abel was righteous. Cain was filled with evil and murder. He was the seed of the serpent in human flesh. This is what verses 11 and 12 say. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We should not be like Cain. Meaning what? We should be like Abel. We shouldn't be like Cain. He was of the evil one. He murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Two reasons. Because his deeds were evil, flowing out of his relationship with the evil one, and his brothers were righteous. Abel's deeds were righteous. Now, Ryan just read for us the story. This is Genesis chapter 4. He made an offering. It's not so much about the actual elements of the offering as some people like to debate. The New Testament gives us a clear commentary. It's Hebrews chapter 11. It tells us explicitly that Abel made an offering with faith. The way to get right with God is to have faith and trust in him. To know that you could give all that you possess and hand it over into the hands of God and then God will care for you well. Abel trusted God and it seems as if Cain did not. And so the contrast even from this first story is about first and foremost the way that the two men approach God. Do you all catch the logic of the first part of the Cain and Abel story is about them worshiping God. They're in right relationship with God based on the way that they by faith make a sacrifice. Then that leads to a second part of the story. Because of not being right with God, what does Cain do? Well, ultimately, he does the very worst thing a human could do. He murders his own brother, his brother of all people, his kinsman. We should not be like Cain. He was of the evil one. He murdered his brother. His deeds were evil because he was of the evil one, and he murdered him because his brothers were righteous. Evil people hate righteous people. It's where he's going next. Just drop down and look at verse 13. Don't be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. They hated Jesus, and we've already established he is the pure, spotless, righteous one. When you enter into a world, or even a room, or in a family, and you are righteous, it condemns and convicts, and it makes people feel uncomfortable. Don't be surprised that if you do the right thing, your coworker is not going to be happy that you didn't cheat with them and you stood up for the truth. That your classmate wanted to cheat on the test and you wouldn't help them. How many other examples could you see throughout the world where people who love to make themselves God and live by their own law hate it when you have a standard and a law that you are submitting to hate it. And that's the conflict between those who are born of God, who are submitting to the righteous law of God, and those who are born of evil desires and intentions. Because his deeds were evil, answer number one, and because his brother Abel's were righteous. The world will not know us, he said in verse one of chapter three. They won't 
know us because we have this weird, strange, alien, out-of-this-world love that's been poured into our hearts. Through the love of being called the children of God, this this makes us otherworldly, and I'm getting that directly from verse 1. See what otherworldly love the Father has lavished upon us, that we could be called children of God, and this is who we are. We are children of God, and that's why the world doesn't get us. It doesn't understand us. The love that pours into our hearts pours out into the world a righteousness because righteousness goes from God's relationship with us out into the world around us. It's never one or the other. It's always both and, which is why when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment, teacher? He said, love God and love your neighbor because they go hand in hand. And it always will be the case. Your righteousness and your standing before God will be reflected by the righteousness in the way that you live with your wife or husband, your children, your brothers, your sisters. Start first with the family. The Bible starts there. Genesis 4, what does it look like to have a righteous, God-fearing, able in a home with a man who's trying to keep for himself, not trusting in God and holding back? in his offering, not having faith in God. It creates tension. It creates death. It's the source of murder, literally murder. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not the envious desires inside of you? Read James 4, 1 through 3 again. Brothers and sisters, remember, we can and we should possess actual righteousness here on earth already now by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think that's what the reference to the seed that is in you is talking about. His seed is in you. Because of that seed in you, you should be expected to be on the different team singing a different song. Yes, imperfectly, but truly it's the right song, isn't it? Were you singing my one defense, my righteousness. Lord, I need you. That's the song. I've got a need, and it's Jesus Christ. So get right first and foremost with God, and then let the outflow of that new relationship with God every day, every hour we need to be reminded of Christ's righteousness on our behalf, that will transform the way we live with one another. And therefore, it would be good for us to pause and ask ourselves, are you right with others? Even in this room, especially in this room, the brothers and sisters of the family of God, the the seed of the woman that has come to crush the serpent's head should be displayed all through the ways you and I reconcile with one another in this room. The fact that we take the Lord's Supper every week should be a weekly reminder that we should leave our gifts at the altar and go run back and make right with our brothers and sisters as Jesus commands us in Matthew chapter 5, or as he states right at the beginning of the Beatitudes, blessed, how fortunate, how good and lucky are you if you are a peacemaker, because there is the spot on the earth where God's kingdom purposes are unfolding, where the good news of the kingdom from heaven is coming down on the earth. Peacemaking. When humans who hate each other love each other and reconcile, When two people who deeply loved each other but then sinned against each other make up through forgiveness. 
We should forgive one another because God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. It's not just God forgave us. That was encouraging. I'm headed home. And then we live in this world not forgiving one another. Jesus has made this so clear again and again in the way that he taught and the teaching about how big the forgiveness he has paid the debt. Have you wrestled and grasped the enormity of the forgiveness God has given to you in Christ Jesus? And then does that directly, immediately lead to application for the way that you live with other people? Brothers and sisters in the church, family members in your home, co-workers, bosses, people that treat you terribly. Blessed though are those peacemakers, those people that lay down their gift at the altar and they run back three-day journey to their home in Galilee and say, I don't need to be in Jerusalem right now at the worship of God in the temple. I am going to set the priority of living in the kingdom of God by getting right with the person I've sinned against. That's the nature of the call of righteous living. The way that God has made us righteous in Christ Jesus produces in us a real righteousness. We're playing a different game, guys. There's new rules. And they're governed by Jesus. And so we should submit ourselves to them. We should take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner every week. Specifically, that refers to discerning the body of Jesus Christ. Both the body of Christ at the right hand of God in heaven interceding for us, and the body of Christ represented all around us in this room. Discern the body. Think every week as you take the Lord's Supper. Is there anybody that's sinned against me or I, them, that I need to reconcile with? Then don't take the bread and cup that week and make it your dropping my gift at the altar, and I go and reconcile with the brother or sister immediately. I think that's the most bullseye, narrow, central way for us to apply this text of living righteously in this church. To fulfill the calling of the Spirit of God in us to live in this world. So, point one, what, what's, what's your righteousness? Do you, do you have a righteousness? My righteousness, you should be able to say it. I'm righteous. I'm living righteously. I'm living right in a good standing with God and with one another. And I've alluded to this again and again, but let's make it more explicit, as John Bunyan does. The only reason and the only way, the only source of actually being able to do this is when you realize the last three words of Bunyan's sentence. My righteousness on the earth is predicated, it is dependent upon, it is necessarily hinged directly to Jesus Christ in heaven. My righteousness is in heaven. That's the single sentence that fell upon his soul. Will it fall upon yours today? Will you see it in our text? This is part two of the sermon. My righteousness, let's think about, is in heaven. Immediately, you may not think that that's what our text is talking about. And it's not because I did a whole bunch of schoolwork recently on the ascension of Christ. I really do think that he's thinking about Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand in heaven right now. And I'm going to make that case for you right now. First, my righteousness is heaven because, well, A, that's where Jesus is when his coming has not yet appeared. Verse 28, look at chapter 2, verse 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears... 
we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his second coming. It's more than likely what it's referring to here in verse 28. So we, we should already know, based on the conversation that started in 2.18, about the coming of the Antichrist, we're in the last hour, we're thinking about what we would say end times, or things are developing in the grand scheme of what God is doing, and that's on John's mind. So that's clue number one, that he's not talking about Jesus' first coming, but he's talking about Jesus' second coming. And where is Jesus now prior to the second coming? Answer, he is in heaven. So our righteousness is in heaven, and verse 29 says, he is righteous. If you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, the one enthroned in heaven right now, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The last time that we were describing Jesus' righteousness in John's letter, when was the last time John brought up Jesus and righteousness? And the answer is chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So maybe flip back there. And what I want you to see is the link between what he has previously stated about Jesus and how he picks up on that here in our text. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This, I think, is good evidence for you and I to realize that John has in his mind, children, yes, you're children, you're born of God. You have God's seed in you by the Holy Spirit. You will sin. Of course you're going to sin. Children fall all the time. You're like a toddler. You're learning to walk. You're learning to talk. You make mistakes, but you're a child. You're a true child, even in your development of discipleship, in your stage of where you're at as a Christian. You will sin. And the hope that we have is that you won't sin, but when you do, look to Christ. Where? Not back in the stories of the Gospels alone, but look specifically. Look narrowly. Look more to Christ in heaven. The one who does sin should remember that you have an advocate, one who is with us and with the Father. Advocate is someone beside you, somebody who's defending you. Sometimes it's used in law court language, like your defense attorney. I have someone defending me. He is Jesus Christ. He is the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He's the blood that covered over the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, which is where this word propitiation comes from. It's the Hebrew word for mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. It's, it's about sacrificial language of cleansing. Look back at chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the case I'm making of 2-2, reintroduces the theme of the ascended Lord at the Father's right hand, the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And then when sin and righteousness reappear in 3-4, we now have the only section in John's letter from here on out where he's going to talk about those two things, sin versus righteousness. So if we track John's thoughts from chapter 1 and 2, now into 3, we should realize that there is a singular righteousness. There's only one. 
There's only one human that's ever walked this earth. And he hit every three-pointer. He scored every touchdown. He never missed a single note. He sang the song pitch perfect. Every word at the right time. Christ, the sinless one. He's the righteous one. So then, who is your righteousness? Is it your good deeds? Do you want to come before the throne of God above and stand with the resume of your life to this point? Or do you want to claim by faith that your righteousness is Jesus Christ, the perfect record being given to you? Like imagine you're just one of those guys sitting on the bench last week in the Super Bowl. You're on the Kansas City Chiefs. We got Patrick Mahomes on our team. And Patrick Mahomes is nothing compared to the example of Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the superstar of all humans. He has won and destroyed the devil. He appeared to take away sins and destroy the works of the devil. Do you want him on your team, but more importantly, your family? Where you're in him? Where the inheritance that he has been given from the Father is going to be shared with all of his brothers and sisters? These are the images that the Bible uses throughout to conjure up for you encouragement that you should never be walking around thinking that you are on your own in this earth. But no, your righteousness is in heaven, and if his seed abides in you, then you will be given the full righteousness of Jesus now and into eternity. And that truth changes your life. It changed John Bunyan's. It flips things upside down. Our text says very clearly in verse 6 and in verse 9 about the appearing of Jesus. It's not just take away sin. It's he bore our sins. It makes a connection with that word lawlessness. In Hebrew, it's avon. And then the word avon can mean two things. It can mean to be crooked or it can be used as a verb to mean to bear something. And here, I think John is a student of the Old Testament and he knows both of these senses. And he says, sin, it's crookedness. It's somebody that's trying to do things on their own, and they're always going to be like a drunk man wobbling around. They're going to be so intoxicated with themselves that they're not going to be able to walk straight. But those who are sober-minded are those who repent of their sins, and they put their faith and trust in God to be the one that sets them straight. Living a straight life versus a crooked life. That's what this lawless versus righteous comparison is talking about. But you and I, we have made so much crooked mess of this world, and it is Jesus Christ who it says in verse 6, he took away, he bore our sin. That's the language in Isaiah 53 that says, he bore our sins. The suffering servant, he became sin for us. We read earlier in the service in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He who knew no sin, perfectly spotless righteous, he took on sin and bore it for his people, fulfilling all of God's old covenant promises and the things that John already said in chapter 1, verse 7 about cleansing us of righteousness, cleansing us of unrighteousness and making us righteous in Jesus Christ, putting his spirit in us so that then we who have been born of God, we, we won't keep on sinning. We won't keep making the same mistake to sing the song of autonomy, of human independence, of rebellion and stiff-arming against God. Don't need you, God. You won't sing that song anymore. 
Even when you fall into sin, you'll come back and realize truth is found in the gospel. It's found in Jesus Christ, the holy, sinless one, our high priest representing us. So John Bunyan was walking in a field, and suddenly a single sentence came upon his soul. My righteousness, it's in heaven. And I thought, wow, right now, at God's right hand, wherever I'm going, whatever I'm doing, God could never say, John, where's your righteousness? Because right there before him always would be the righteousness of Jesus on John Bunyan's behalf. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Did you love how at the very beginning he said, so I could feel really good today? That wouldn't change my righteousness. I could feel really bad today. Righteousness is still the same. What if I performed very poorly this last week? My righteousness is Jesus. What if you had a really good week? Still probably fell short of Jesus. That's why you need his righteousness. Even your very best week of performance will fall short of the righteousness of Jesus. You need Jesus' righteousness. And the good news is, it's there. It's to be had. It can be yours. Turn from your sins and your lawlessness and your rebellion of thinking that you've got it figured out and embrace the free gift of Jesus' salvation. And Christian, be encouraged. Did you sin this last week? Probably. So turn, as John says in 1 John chapter 2. Look, there he is. That's your advocate. That's your defense attorney. He is defending you. Let me close with these final words of John Bunyan's autobiography. Right after where I paused in the introduction, he goes on and he elaborates. And I hope and pray that this will be true for many of us, whether this is for the first time that a single sentence, my righteousness is in heaven, lands on our soul and encourages us, or for the hundredth thousandth time. Now indeed, when I realized that my righteousness was in heaven, chains fell off my legs. I was loosed from my afflictions and all of my many burdens. My temptations fled away. From that time forward, those dreadful scriptures that used to terrify me, terrified me no more. I went home rejoicing because of the grace and the love of God. I lived there in his presence, sweetly at peace, with God through Jesus Christ. Oh, for a long time, there was nothing but Christ before my eyes. I was not thinking of him now only concerning his blood or his burial or his resurrection, but I was thinking about the person himself sitting there on the right hand of God in heaven. And this is the nice testimony of John Bunyan, what changed his life. Is it going to change yours? Is it going to encourage you for another week? Is it going to help you when you sin this afternoon? Oh, yes, my righteousness. It's in heaven. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we do not dare come in any other name but fully trust the sweetest frame, Jesus Christ, his righteousness on our behalf. We want to pray now in the name of Jesus. We want to pray by the mediation of Jesus that your Holy Spirit, the seed that you've planted in so many of us already, 
evidenced by the right relationship we have with you and the way that we live to live in a ministry of reconciliation now with one another. We also pray that if there's anyone here today, whether they're a a child of a church member that's yet to be baptized, yet to have repented of their sin, I pray that they would see how empty their resume is before God. They would see how futile it would be to keep relying upon their own good works. I pray also that if there's anyone here that does not realize how much better it is to submit to your holy law, how good your commands are, how your way is straight and leads to life rather than the crookedness of our own lawlessness. I pray, God, that you would bring the conviction of the Spirit and plant that seed in the hearts of those that need to receive it today. And that ultimately, I pray that each of us would receive the imputed righteousness of Jesus, the gift of the perfect righteous record given to us as humans because Christ became a human for us, died for us, rose again, and is now right there before you. In his name we pray for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.